0: You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Hamid, one of the PhD students of the program. Unthinkable. Surreal. On June 22, 2020, a moment long feared by women and the supporters of civil rights across space and partisan lines came to fruition in the United States with the overruling of Dobbs v. Jackson women's health by the American Supreme Court, effectively dissolving constitutional protections over the right to legal abortions for American women as a right of privacy. As the ink on the decision dried, Trigger states in the American South immediately enacted laws banning abortions, even in life-or-death situations, some going as far as seeking to frame the medical procedure as a crime tantamount to murder. The decision was condemned not only by activists in the American reproductive rights community, but by policymakers, world leaders, and observers across the planet as an ideologically driven attack on women, an example of the kind of institutional decay that can be caused by the polarization of courts. While the decision was largely met with anger and derision, one thing it wasn't met with was surprise. Indeed, the domination and control over women's bodies in the U.S. is an issue that arguably stretches back centuries to the birth of the nation. And since the Supreme Court's decision over Roe v. Wade in 1973 established that right of women to bodily integrity, personal freedom, and privacy, those very rights have been under attack by the American right, pushing an antagonistic view of the right to privacy and women's health to the core of Republican identity in the decades since. Why has the American right been so preoccupied with the elimination of women's rights and freedoms? How have actors within civil society mobilized against this decision in the weeks since? And what does this mean for the protection of reproductive rights in Canada amidst resurgent anti-abortion movement emboldened by the American example? To discuss these questions and more, I'm joined today by Kim Nesbitt. Kim is an incoming PhD student with the Department of Political Science, specializing in reproductive justice and international relations. She's also a strident activist in the reproductive justice community here in Canada. Kim, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited.
0: Likewise. Excited, but also kind of taken aback, because this Mm -hmm. is a surreal thing to discuss right, that we are here to discuss abortion rights in the U.S. in the past tense, so it's unfathomable it's we've come to this moment because we're, we're talking about something which I think you and I will agree here, it's a medical procedure, but it's mm-hmm. something which has become so central to the body politic in the U.S., and I guess just to begin, I was wondering if you could walk us through just why this issue has become so heavily politicized in the U.S.,
1: It's a very, very good question. And yes, it is a very heavy subject matter. So I'll do my best to speak eloquently about it. Um, To be honest, I think the issue of the body has always been political in the United States, no matter how you approach it. But I think it's more a question of whose body than anything else. Since the early days of the United States, we've seen black and brown bodies been exploited. And subjected to reproductive control since slavery. And this, you know, this exploitation was crucial to the perpetuation of capitalist class relations. It was crucial to upholding white supremacy across the country. Black women's reproductive capacity was critical to the creation and sustainment of the economic system of slavery. And it went beyond the the economic as well domination of reproduction was the most effective means of subjugating women who were enslaved by not only denying them the autonomy over their own bodies but the ability to control their destiny as well and just live their personhood and just a side note they didn't take that passively at all um they were incredibly active in their resistance at times they even would use abortion as a means to oppose the conditions of slavery so not because they were rejecting motherhood, but they were actually rejecting the political system at large itself because they did not want to be bringing up children in that world. So really when we talk about the issue of the body, I think it's always been baked into American politics because it has been used by those of the ruling class to secure power and sustain the present system at hand. It comprises the very foundation of a lot of the political system in the United States. And we're obviously encountering this in the present But the issue of the body has always taken different forms in American politics, whether you look at slavery or whether you look at segregation of schools. Um, You can even look to the insular cases after the Spanish-American War, which when faced with the, the question of if those within newly conquered American territories qualified as citizens, they were later found to not be afforded the same constitutional protections as continental residents, despite being under the American empire and the American rule, And similar things are taking place now. So really, I think this question could be applied in a lot of different contexts, depending on who you ask. Um, but in terms of the right to abortion, we're really seeing a continuation of this sort of domination of reproduction and of bodies that can be traced back to the beginning days of the United States. So
0: mm-hmm. this notion of reproductive rights being given protection under privacy rights, it's very much a critical juncture in the sort of development of American civil rights, you know, let alone just women's rights specifically. Yep. You know, but as long as it's been there, it's also been under threat, particularly from the right they've been targeting it. It's always been something that folks have run on. One would imagine that the Americans have a democratic majority, those would be protected, yet somehow now, in this moment, you know, with a quote unquote progressive regime, we see those rights being taken away. And I was just wondering if perhaps you could speak to how that finally happened now.
1: I think the important thing to remember here, and I think you highlight this already in your question, is that this is something that the right and the anti abortion movement itself, in the context of what we're facing right now, Um, has been working at for decades and has been chipping away at it for decades this was not simply something that took place overnight and despite many people you know who followed the supreme court and many people within the reproductive justice community having said for years now that this was coming they knew that this was coming down the tubes they knew that Roe was going to become under attack Um, it didn't hurt any less when it hit and it hit hard because it is a privacy right Um, and it was heartbreaking and it was dark And it does lead to many people asking, you know, how could this happen in 2022? How did we get here? How did they finally take it away? And this question itself, I think you can answer differently. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because it is a composition of a variety of factors. We can discuss how the GOP and the Trump administration specifically assembled a Supreme Court of conservative justices as well as district court judges across the country who were very determined to erode the constitutional rights of those who were most vulnerable, and privacy rights in general, not just abortion. Um, And we can also talk about the workings of patriarchy, and how the majority of white cis men in power have created a system that relies upon the subjugation of women and people of color to uphold their own positions of power. And this is a question that I've been ruminating on for a while now. And I think the best answer I have actually come across was actually provided by a really active reproductive justice scholar and activist named Renee Bracey Sherman. And she has this really brilliant piece where she points out that it is the United States legacy with anti-Blackness that has largely actually brought us here. It is what brought us the Dobbs decision but it's also what has brought us other anti-abortion legislation like what we see with SB8 in Texas. The anti-abortion movement itself is a white supremacist movement and in the United States it is one that came through the resentment at the Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education. She points out too that this was then later exacerbated By the elimination of Christian prayer in schools in '62, followed by integration of public schools through busing in '71, so again, all before Roe was even really on the docket, and we saw a very significant amount of white evangelical Christians needing an issue that they could exploit for their own agenda, that maintained this similar sort of divide that Jim Crow segregation did. So they latched onto Roe versus Wade, and. Anti-abortion groups and activists spend a great deal of time, a great deal of resources, and a great deal of energy and they have for decades trying to elect politicians that sort of reinforce this white supremacist Christian ideal of the family and of reproduction. And they have consistently chipped away at reproductive freedom, not just through the enactment of abortion restrictions, but through attacking contraception, um, inflicting coercive sterilization practices, on black indigenous people of color, um, implementing family cap laws, ultimately just overall criminalizing those who fall outside their narrow view of reproduction in the family. Um, So both before Roe and after Roe, they have consistently carried out these strategies to further their agendas. And it's that can, and then combined with the current composition of the Supreme Court and the Fed SOC six, as well as the plethora of issues the Trump administration created failures through both Congress and the Senate um, that I think have largely contributed to this wall of Roe.
0: So it's been a few weeks since, you know, Supreme Court did that sort of unthinkable action. I don't know about you, but for me, even the the experience of finding it out was a little surreal. It was one of the few times I found myself in the States. So I'm sitting Mm -hmm. in a gas station barbecue place called pig and moo when i'm there like oh we're gonna <laughs> have some brisket and then yeah. on the tv is the president talking about how people shouldn't be you know, moving to violence uh because of this decision which i didn't even yeah. know happened because i was yeah. driving but yeah surreal would be the only way i could describe it and you know it's been a few weeks since that surreal moment and i'm just wondering what has been the impact right away of that decision have we seen states enact legislation and, yeah, what, what are the prospects looking like moving forward?
1: Um, this is a very good question, and a lot has happened even in these few weeks. So I'll try to speak to most of, of, of what's happened. Immediately after the Supreme Court, and we, again, like I said, we knew this was coming. The Alito leak dropped weeks before this happened. So states did have time to prepare because we knew what was coming, even if there was some there was some talk of, how might they alter the Alito draft? You know, might they actually see the pushback and strike a compromise? Um, but it basically dropped as the Alito draft sort of predicted that it would. Um, so immediately after they handed down Dobbs, trigger laws went into effect. So within 24 hours, there's a, there was about 13 states who have trigger laws and nine of those within 24 hours um, immediately criminalized abortion within their borders. So states like Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri. immediately. If you had an appointment scheduled to get an abortion, you could no longer within their borders. When you gave me this question, I really didn't want to speak for people who are on the ground doing the work. And I came across this really good thread by Robin Marty, who is a brilliant author and has since become an actual operating director of a local abortion clinic in Alabama. Um, She had a really good Twitter thread on the immediate impacts Rose having on her clinic being in a trigger loss state. And she tells this story of how she made three lists. The first was entitled June. The second was was entitled July. And the third was August. So for June, you know, it sort of covered what needed to be dealt with immediately. July was sort of what needed to be dealt with in the coming weeks, because I believe the decision dropped on like June 24th. Um, And then the August list was, you know, what the future may be held. So in the immediate, patients had to be informed that abortion was no longer with, legal within their state, and they could no longer receive the healthcare that they required. They would be informed of the next closest clinic, and staff essentially at this time became counselors for patients, because obviously people were distraught. Um, so they tried to as for, inform them as best as they can of what their options were. She immediately started taking supply assessments of things like misopristol, which is an abortion pill. Um, she noted how these things were required, and she questioned, you know, is less going to be needed since they can no longer provide medication abortion through the clinic, or is more going to be required given that it's still used in non-elective abortion reproductive care, so you kind of have to go through this wane of options. Her July list was more logistical, involved a lot of surveying and contact, contacting patients to see what care could be provided, what what they needed, that sort of thing and tending to other projects within the clinic that needed attention. And then our August list only consisted of one thing, which was just keeping the clinic alive, which I think really speaks for the reality that these local abortion funds, especially within these trigger law states um, are facing. And I think it's really important to mention here that even for those who are residing in states where abortion has not immediately been banned, Or, you know, that's likely they will likely be protected, New York, New Jersey, California, things like that. Those people are still going to be at risk as well. Besides the fact that Republicans have spoken of their desire for a national ban next, um, access is another issue entirely. It's going to be harder to access these procedures in general, even if you can get to another state. Wait times are obviously going to increase due to increased patient loads which then also causes the, causes the cost of the procedures to go up because it increases with gestation. For those who are residing in border communities, for instance, like Rio Grande Valley, they risk potentially facing even deportation proceedings if they wish to access abortion outside of Texas due to things like SB8, you know, which is the, the bounty hunter abortion law. We're seeing a lot of the local abortion clinics having to shut down Jackson's Women Health Organization in Texas, they have to move to New Mexico. Um, There's stories coming out. There's a story of a little girl who's 10 years old in Ohio, which is a very abortion hostile state who had to travel across state lines with her parents to get an abortion after she had been raped. And it's incredibly heavy. Um, And then that exists on top of other concerns In the immediate aftermath that have to do with digital and physical security because you know and i'm saying we loosely here but we exist in this sort of surveillance society and we should be even more concerned now about the relationship this has with the police state especially with the state of policing in the united states we are going to see increased criminalization of pregnancy we already are even before roe fell this was an issue and is going to proliferate even further And this is especially true for black and brown women across the country who do not have the same relationship to the police state that white women do. This is going to affect them the most. It's also going to affect trans and non-binary people the most who already struggle to access care as well. And this needs to be of utmost concern. And atop of this as well, conversations have started to be had about digital security um, regarding data on period tracking apps because... These apps have the ability to store and sell data to people that may wish to criminalize people seeking an abortion, or just a termination of pregnancy, or maybe simply weighing their options. And this is just going to largely contribute to the criminalization of pregnancy and abortion at large. The landscape already exists, and it's the way it is more than likely going to proliferate is terrifying. And we were talking earlier about, about privacy rights. And... I think it's also very important to mention here, not me trying to take away from the importance that this has, but there are other privacy rights that are at stake now as well, because it does not end with Roe. And I have said this for a while now, um, echoing other people within the community, that abortion is simply the watershed through which the FedSoc 6 and Republicans at large are going to continue to chip away at other privacy rights, including those related to same-sex marriage, and same-sex relationships and contraception in justice thomas's concurring opinion he speaks of this outright he specifically calls on conservative advocates to bring forward a test through which they can challenge overfell and lawrence and griswold which is incredibly concerning and then i think one of the most scary things of all is i wrote my thesis and that focused a lot on the maternal mortality crisis in the United States and this is inevitably going to worsen. You know, there's an expected 39% increase in black maternal mortality now because Roe has fallen. And this is especially dire in states like Mississippi and Missouri where it is more dangerous to give birth than it is to get an abortion. People are going to die. And you know, I don't mean to invoke fear by saying that because the situation is different compared to, you know, the 70s when Roe was first on the docket. Because there is, you know, means to accessing safe and effective medical abortion through the mail, for instance, but people are still going to die and people are going to die for other reasons, like being unable to access the healthcare that they need. People are going to bleed out after epitoctic pregnancies rupture, or because doctors are no longer going to be able to intervene in cases of ectopic pregnancy because the treatment for an epitoctic pregnancy is an abortion. People are going to die from sepsis due to incomplete miscarriages. The risk of suicide will inevitably increase because people are gonna feel that they have no other options or the means to get what they need. For those who are stuck in domestic violence situations, people are gonna risk being killed and harmed by partners as a result of unwanted pregnancy. They risk dying from other conditions like cancer because intervening in those conditions risks harming a fetus. There are some states that have invoked that abortion is equivalent to murder. And that's really scary. And the American healthcare system for years has already been failing Black and Indigenous and people of color at every turn. And all of these are going to worsen.
0: So I can't help but think of the Biden administration here, because, again, going back to that moment, personally, I discovered Roe versus Wade being struck down. It came from the mouth of Joe Biden himself, and he used pretty incendiary language in terms of fighting it. You know, yeah. it has since become this sort of electoral rally cry for the Democratic Party. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just wondering, in terms of those words, and in terms of the institutional response from the Biden administration, you know, do you feel it's been adequate?
1: I think this is a really good question. I will say, for many of us within the reproductive justice community, uh, we have been very frustrated with the Biden administration's response to this, and even before Roe's fall and you know biden has made some very good steps even the fact like electing a black woman to the supreme court is huge especially with a record as great as katanjis is going to be he's made progress on things like leaving out the Hyde amendment in the budget proposal Which is for people who may not know, the the Hyde Amendment is simply a congressional rider that's typically attached to the budget, which allows states to bar Medicaid funding from being allocated to abortion services. So he has left that out of his budget proposal. And I mean, it's not a full repeal of Hyde, which would be ideal. But so he has taken some steps to try to alleviate the barriers to abortion access. But again, many people that I follow within this community are very frustrated by his handling of this crisis. The man struggles to even say the word abortion. He frequently uses euphemisms like choice and Roe and Roe versus Wade and a women's right to choose as a fill-in. And you and I both know language is incredibly important, um, especially as a politician. And Americans deserve a president who does not shy away from using straightforward language because a failure to use straightforward language and say abortion outright just contributes to the stigma which surrounds it. And it, treating it like it's a dirty word really... Does know it, and does nobody any favors. This past week, actually, he released an executive order which was aimed at protecting access to reproductive health care services, which some people have said is better than nothing. Um, but again, I, I personally feel, and a lot of people feel that it is lacking. And the order itself, I would say, is largely vague. It contains a series of directives aimed at health and human services, as well as the Justice Department. It's unclear of how they intend to meet these goals they called for things like an expansion of access to medical abortion for those in states where abortion has not been banned, but it's unclear what they're actually going to do to, for instance, eliminate the barriers that still exist in accessing these medications over the counter. And, you know, it's asked the Justice Department to convene lawyers to rep- represent those who must cross state lines to access care and face criminalization upon returning home to their home state. But it does little to actually outline how it intends to help lawyers and groups that are already doing this work to begin with, or, you know, what may happen when these resources initially run out. It speaks of protecting, for instance, patients and providers' privacy, but it fails to address how it plans to target things like crisis pregnancy centers or fake abortion clinics, which not only collect a plethora of patient information, but contribute to a lot of misinformation as well you know, it doesn't answer the question of how are you actually going to protect contraception access? Because we're already seeing states even um, attacking things like getting an IUD. And it fails to create just in general, these clear obligations for these agencies or objectives for access to abortion, which has left many people frustrated. And a lot of people have cited, you know, Biden's a centrist. He's spoken very candidly of how he wants to form a broad-based coalition. And a lot of people are pointing to this as his reasoning behind this inadequacy. In this past week, has, the administration has spoken that they feel as though their response is in tandem with the mainstream opinion, but the repo community itself, the people who are on the ground doing the work, who have been doing the work for decades, they feel otherwise. You know, it it was in the news and there was a lot of pushback where the White House communications director stated last week and that in their response to Dobbs, Biden is not looking to satisfy some activists who have been consistently at a step with the mainstream Democratic Party. And he's instead is looking to assemble a broad-based coalition to defend a women's right to choose. Again, a very narrow sort of language. And what this does is abandon many of those who continue to fight for access. And it's continuing to push this narrative that voting is going to fix everything. And voting here is important. I don't mean to discredit that in any way. And I've always been a person to push very hard for it. But in a country where Republicans are redrawing voting districts, you know, there's gerrymandered states where Republicans are making it more difficult for Black citizens to vote by invoking Jim Crow-like legislation. A response beyond voting is necessary at the federal level if they actually wish to support those who are going to be adversely affected by this decision. So I personally do not feel That the response has been adequate enough. More can be done, real progress can be made if this administration consulted with the right people on the ground within this community who have been doing this work for decades now. And I believe if he started doing more of that, you would see some real change. I'm glad
0: that you mentioned the work of reproduction rights activists because the response from them, obviously. Has, has been one of, well, ramped up activism to be expected. We've seen protests across the world, in Canada, even beyond activists, you know, the European Parliament recently uh-huh. voted to condemn the strike down of Roe versus Wade. And I was just wondering in terms of civil society activity, what options are there for, our, not even just activists and people within the movement itself, but even just allies as well. You know, what options are there in order to protect reproductive rights and
1: the health and well being of women? I'm so happy that you asked this question, because I do love this question. And I know we've spent time up until now talking about how dire the situation is. But it is also important for people to realize that there can there is work to be done here, um, and that there is hope. You know, one of my favorite repro scholars always says, like, we need to be defiantly joyful in these situations as we move forward. And I think that is important. And then, you know, in terms of options for civil society activists and even just allies, I would say the most important thing, first off, is education. A lot of the time when these sorts of things take place and these crises happen, many jump up and they yell, let me help, what can I do? And I think the most important thing right now is to be listening to those who have been working within this community for decades and for a really long time. Just like with voting rights, Black women especially have been mo- mobilizing and facilitating access to reproductive health care comprehensive reproductive health care for decades yet they are frequently neglected in these conversations or pushed to the fringe and we need to be listening to them and to others before anything else and me saying this is not to put the onus of education either on them because frankly it's not their responsibility but rather it's to place the onus upon the people who need and want to do the work without erasing those who are pioneers in the in the movement as well you know just like for instance, like just like during the Black Lives Matter movement, we saw a lot of people taking time to challenge for their own biases, to read books by Black authors, to educate themselves on the history of oppression and discrimination across the country. And I think similar things really need to be done here as well. And beyond just like the mainstream approach to understanding what we are facing here, Dorothy Roberts is a really great pioneer here. Killing the Black Body is a prolific book. Loretta J. Ross is another one. She's another pioneer here. I spoke of Renee Bracy Sherman. She's an incredible voice as well. Imani Gandhi and Jessica Piccolo at Rewire News Group, which is a repro news source. They are leading experts on this stuff and have been breaking news stories before any other news organizations in the States. So, you know, when government response continues to fail, I think these are the voices that we must be listening to here because the, that is what gives people hope and keeps people informed and keeps people educated. So that would be the first thing. Beyond education, I think creating an awareness of the existing network of local abortion clinics and funds is incredibly important. I understand that many people's knee jerk reaction is going to be to donate to Planned Parenthood and other organizations like NAF, but it's important to keep in mind that a lot of these organizations receive great deals of funding every single year. And at times, there have been stories that have been coming out of them denying abortion services prematurely in some states before bans have taken effect. Local and grassroots abortion funds and clinics are those who need the support right now. They need the resources and they need the funding. They are compiled of volunteers and workers who are tireless in their efforts to raise money to cover travel expenses for those who may have to cross state lines to access care they're the ones who are organizing flights and accommodations for people who have to travel out of state. They connect people with the services that they need. And the infrastructure is already in place. And that is where support and funding needs to be going. There is sort of this discourse going on right now where it's like, they're basically like, oh, you can come camping in my state, and I will aid the bet and abortion. And I think that's great and that's the kind of energy need, we need, but when the infrastructure already exists, you're putting people at risk if you're not informed on how to actually facilitate what people need properly. So it's really important, I think, that the discussion becomes how do we help these people on the ground already doing the work at these local abortion funds and local abortion clinics. And we have seen some people in the public eye who've done a great job of bringing light to this, like Megan The Stallion's one, Uh, rage against the machine is another one. Halsey is one. And this, this is what I think needs to continue. And these conversations need to continue to be had. And I would say that's probably the most important thing and just staying informed, you know, staying informed with, with accurate information and and stuff like that and not losing the energy. It is a very, it can be a very disheartening and tiring thing to follow. um, But it is incredibly important. So you know, self care, taking the time you need, but also trying not to lose the energy that you need to move forward.
0: So the last question for me, in the, with this line of questioning, I, I just kind of want to take a step out of the U.S. Uh, situation, just because you know, my partner kind of worked this really well when we were talking about this earlier today. In the sense that you had legal precedent, which was essentially revoked without any new evidence being brought forward, right? Which is a strange thing because it kind of eliminates the notion of legal precedent. In Canada, we have constitutionally enshrined abortion rights. However, we do have also a defined anti-abortion movement in Canada as well with links to prominent politicians. So I was just wondering, in your view, is there also a risk for women in Canada as well when it comes to their reproductive rights?
1: I'm so happy you asked this question because I think it's really important for us to reflect and realize that we are not infallible to these things that could happen. Whenever these sort of crises happen in the United States, we should always be concerned with how it impacts Canada beyond the fact that the United States is a hegemon. You know, this is somebody that we share a border with, we, they continue to be our largest trading partner. And culturally speaking, much of what happens there permeates here. And I think in this discussion, you know we need to understand too it's not just the right to abortion but the ability to access abortion as well simply because we have a right to something does not mean the ability to access such a right actually exists or that exists equally for everybody and this has long been the reality of the case here in canada um beyond metropolitan hubs like that of, of toronto vancouver ottawa montreal the ability to access abortion and reproductive health care services is difficult for many across the country this is especially true for Indigenous communities and for other people of color, and again, trans and non-binary individuals. Um, many people in Northern communities are required to travel to access care, especially once they pass certain gestational points. Uh, women up North frequently have to fly from Nunavut or Northwest Territories or wherever to Montreal or to Ottawa. And on top of that, Indigenous women and girls continue to face coercive sterilization practices. So even before Rose Fall, I think it's important for Canadians to realize that the situation was not great here to begin with. And on top of that, we have a defined anti-abortion movement as well. And now with the fall of Roe, I think you will see this sort of thing embolden many anti-abortion groups and anti-abortion politicians. We're already seeing it, whether it's with Pierre Polivier or even other candidates like Leslie Lewis, who has specifically spoken out about wanting to impose restrictions on sex-selective abortions and provide resources for crisis pregnancy centers to counsel women. And I think we should be very aware and concerned with these conversations happening and how this is emboldening people because these open and create opportunities for an infrastructure to be built similar to that of the U.S. um, where restrictions are invoked and barriers are further put in place, uh, which risks then potentially eroding both the ability to access and also just have the right to comprehensive reproductive health care. We've seen Something that came up recently in discourse too was people calling for an abortion law to be enacted here in Canada. And you kind of touch on this in your question. I think it would be counterintuitive for the pro-abortion movement here to advocate for something like that because it does allow for it to to then be challenged and toppled. Granted, our court composition here is a bit different, but nonetheless, I don't think we want to be creating those sorts of openings. You know, We talked about this before, but the anti-abortion movement is a white supremacist movement. And it is a white supremacist movement here in Canada as well. And, you know, we have encountered an increase in white nationalism and white supremacy across this country in the past years. And we're, I think, bound to encounter increased anti-abortion sentiment as well. And in order to combat that, Again, voting is incredibly important, paying attention to political platforms is incredibly important, and holding people accountable is incredibly important. But I think what is important here, too, is that we, with the fall of Roe and Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the U.S., it shows that a right to something is not always guaranteed. And especially when people in power are not concerned with overall well-being or even things like legal precedent, that is a red flag. So I think more than anything, we need to be vigilant. We should always be vigilant and we should always fight to protect both the right and the ability to access comprehensive reproductive health care. You know, literature shows that rolling back on reproductive rights and access is often a precursor for a backsliding democracy, which again, you can see in the United States. So while I wouldn't say that maybe we will see this right dissolve immediately here, we have no idea what the future holds and we do need to be vigilant and we need to be strong in defending it.
0: And so the last question I want to ask um, is about you, because you have been a member of the Carleton community for some time. Uh, As a graduate student, it seems that time is going to be continuing as a PhD student in the future. So I was just wondering if you could tell us all a bit about your work and your research.
1: Yes, I am staying at Carleton for my PhD, which I start this fall, and I'm incredibly excited. It is an amazing community. I'm so lucky to be a part of it with you and so many other amazing colleagues and and professors my own work I mean obviously revolves a lot around reproductive justice and abortion but specifically my research will be looking at how reproductive justice and the ability to access abortion is a means to achieving security in conflict and post-conflict regimes. It's a little bit interdisciplinary in what I do. A lot of it is going to be within the realm of feminism and reproductive justice, but also with international relations because that is my other academic love. So that's that's essentially what my dissertation is going to surround. But a lot of my my immediate research has been full of Roe versus Wade lately and everything going on in the, in the United States and the effects that this is bound to have, not just within its borders, but in Canada and, and across the world. So, yeah.
0: This is a good fight. We should be using our research to kind of do something about it.
1: Yes, exactly. That's the hope.
0: Thanks so much for this conversation. It was really insightful. So I uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with us about this stuff today.
1: Oh, Thank you for having me. It was very really nice to have this space to actually be able to flush this stuff up. It was, it was awesome.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at cu underscore polysci. On Instagram at cu underscore and on Facebook at carltonu.polisci.